This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how we can all learn to overcome other people's biases and turn adversity into advantage. It's Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time here in Philadelphia, and if you're hearing us live on Sirius XM 132, give us a call. We'd really love to have you join in the conversation. Our phones are open and we're taking calls at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Have you ever had the experience of working hard or doing exceptionally good work only to be overlooked because of someone else's bias or preconceived notions about you? Like you really rocked that project, but somebody else got selected for the next one because they presumed you're pregnant, you'll go on maternity leave and maybe stay home? Or are you a non-native speaker of English and you find that your accent is getting in the way of people seeing just how competent and creative you are. We would love to hear your story. Give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. We'd love to hear your story. And we're pretty confident that today's guest will not only understand, but help you change the outcome going forward. Harvard University Professor Laura Huang is a former colleague here at the Wharton School and an expert on interpersonal relationships and implicit bias in the workplace. She's here today to talk about her new book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Let me tell you a little more about her before we begin. Laura's formal title is the MBA Class of 1954 Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Yeah, that other school up in Boston. Prior to her position at Harvard, she was a highly regarded assistant professor of management here at Wharton and one of my very favorite collaborators. She's the creator of Hashtag Find Your Edge, an initiative dedicated to addressing inequality and disadvantage through personal empowerment. Her award-winning research has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and Nature. And she was named one of the 40 best business school professors under the age of 40 by poets and quants. So with that, let me say, Laura, welcome to Women at Work. Hi, so it's a pleasure to be here with you. I couldn't be more excited. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Oh, me too. Me too. So nice to talk to you. (laughs) So, Laura, Over the years, we've had the good fortune to talk to some amazing women, to hear and read the stories of other amazing women like Sandra Day O'Connor, Valerie Jarrett, Michelle Obama. And they each share the same refrain, that they were told early on that they would have to work twice as hard, three times as hard for women of color to get half as far. Why is that the case for so many people, that we have to work harder than others and even then it's not enough? I know. I mean, it's exhausting, right? We're told sort of just keep putting in the yeah. hard work. And it's, it's something that we just from a really young age, we, we tell people that we've heard, you know, just keep putting in that hard work and, you know, the, the rewards and the success will come. And the thing is, we do this and we put in that hard work and we realize at some point that hard work doesn't always speak for itself. And, you know, it's, um, you know, hard work is critical. Um, it's absolutely critical, but hard work alone is not what's dictating the outcomes. And so we sort of get to this realization that there's other things that are going on, that, you know, it's the, it's the perceptions and signals and stereotypes of others that sometimes dictate those outcomes. You know, it was Valerie Jarrett and both Michelle Obama told a critical story of a moment when they met. And um, Michelle insisted that before she took the job that they had to have dinner uh, with her husband. And mm-hmm. this was a radical, crazy idea that totally caught Valerie by surprise, su- like delighted her, intrigued her. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and the rest is American history. Yeah. So is this just the magic of them or is there something to that notion? You talk about it in terms of delight, I think, of yeah. in the moment what we can do to kind of change the game. Absolutely. When we realize that it's often about the signals and perceptions and stereotypes of others, we can actually flip those stereotypes in our favor. And that's how we can sort of find and create our own edge. And it comes with sort of recognizing and being, you know, and, 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 and acknowledging that some people naturally have an advantage, 
but other people can create one for themselves. And so when we find ourselves in a situation where we don't naturally have that advantage, we can create one for ourselves by acknowledging those stereotypes, those perceptions of others, and flipping them in our favor. So um, I want to unpack this with another story. There's one that you share in the book, in the beginning of the book, about um, when you met Elon Musk and confronted a barrier and um, overcame it with this approach. Can you tell us the story? Yeah. So um, I serendipitously, you know, had this meet, which is a whole nother story about delight <laughs> and edge and all of that. But serendipitously had this meeting with Elon Musk. A friend and I um, were meeting with him to talk about the private space industry. Um, so he's obviously, um, you know, with SpaceX and um, and we had this meeting with him. Uh, we had done tons of preparation for this meeting, right, as, as one would if they were meeting with Elon Musk. So we had researched not only SpaceX, but all of his other companies, um, knew lots about his, his history and where he's been and what his perspectives are. We had done all of the preparation and hardware. We even had a gift prepared for him to thank him for his time. And so we show up at his office, and within 10 to 30 seconds, within the first, you know, 10 seconds, he looks at us and he says, no. Like, that was literally his first word to us. He said, no, get out of my office. And, you know, in that moment, I'm sort of thinking, like, what is going on? I mean, he I haven't even said a word. There's nothing that I've said. Um, but just no, the minute you walk was, in the door. It was no, get out of my office. And so both of us are sort of stunned. And in that stunned moment, you know, I think out of nervousness or something, I just started laughing. Oh, I don't know beautiful. what it was, but I just started, <laughs> I started laughing, which kind of took him by surprise. And so then he started laughing. And I have no idea where, why he was laughing. But, of course, there is research on mirroring that shows that in, you know, situations of uncertainty, we sort of mirror the behaviors of other people. So he started laughing. So the two of us are sort of laughing at each other at this point. And in that moment, I realized that he's not actually looking at us. He's looking at the gift that we're holding. And I think, oh, crap, he thinks we are entrepreneurs who are trying to pitch him <sighs> and trying to pitch him to get either his money, like as an investor, or access to his networks and introductions. Um, and, and so I kind of sputter out in my laughter uh, oh, you think we're entrepreneurs? And he says something like, well, well, aren't you? And I say, and you think we want your money? And, he think, and he's like, don't you? And I said, what, like you have money or something? <laughs> and, and then with that sort of comment, um, it was, he started laughing, you know, hysterically and, was, and said, please come into my office. And, you know, I think it was, it, it's sort of this, we often, um, have these sort of situations where we're not sure what's going on. There's so much uncertainty and unknowability. But I, but, but not only sort of the preparation that we had put in, but it was so important to kind of recognize the perceptions that he had about us. Yes. This perception of, I mean, it, it, it's sort of this, you know, we had to kind of put ourselves in this mind frame of, of course his default answer is no. I mean, this is a man who is getting asked for things all the time, for his time, his money, resources, introductions. His default answer has to be no. And the two of us standing there holding this, this, this product that sort of looked like a prototype, um, you know, he, of course, was, was like, who are these people? They're entrepreneurs trying to pitch me, trying to sell right, me Right, and how do I make them go away? <laughs> Exactly. And so, you know, once we realized that, we were sort of able to flip that. And, and it was that delight. We delighted him in such a way that we just cracked open the door. I mean, we still had to go into his office and have a real conversation with him. Um, but, you know, we had a wonderful conversation. Um, and, and by the end of that meeting, um, in fact, he was offering us all of the very things that he was so adamant about saying no to begin with. So I want to say you know, let me introduce you to this person and this per and, and, and this person, you know, and so it was it was all of that that kind of led to. It's such that. a marvelous story and it's rich and I want to unpack it because there are things that happen there that you talk about through the book that I think are, are important touchstones. So one was that um, throughout the book, 
And also deep into your research, you talk about people's um, implicit biases, stereotypes. And it's interesting that it's not just about the color of our skin or our gender. Um, It has a lot of different dimensions. And in this case, it was actually if you were an entrepreneur, that was the thing he had a bias against. Right, right. And, Absolutely. And then the other thing that you mentioned was that, you know, the laughing might have been a nervous response. So talk to me about the emotions that you had in that moment and how you controlled them enough to see clearly or accidentally find your way to an open door. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times when we prepare for things, we almost over prepare right? We go into situations where, you know, either the odds are stacked against us or that we know we need to convince somebody of something. And we have, you know, the 10 points that we want to make. And, you know, that's actually not the best sort of thing. You want to go in prepared, but you don't want to be over prepared. When you're not over prepared, you allow yourself to sort of have that that leeway. You allow yourself to be able to dynamically improvise and pivot when you need to so that you can sort of delight that counterpart and show how you are going to enrich and provide value. Um, You know, I think part of this is when you're trying to gain that edge, I mean, edge is based on um, this research that I've been doing for, for, you know, over a decade, but it also stands for the framework that has come out of this research, the E-D-G-E. And the E is about enrich, um, enriching and provide val- providing value, and knowing not just who you are and the value you provide, but also understanding the perceptions of your counterpart and which pieces of you there is going to resonate the most with them the pieces of you that is really going to enrich and provide value to them. The problem is that we don't always have that opportunity because we don't belong to the right networks, we don't belong to the right groups, or you have a man standing in front of you who's immediately saying, no, get out of my office. (laughs) And so the problem is that we don't always have that opportunity to show how we enrich and provide value. And so the D that you're speaking of, that's delight. So the D of edge is when you are able to delight someone, that's the equivalent of being able to show them some piece of you that's either unexpected or counterintuitive or slightly surprising. And when you're able to do that, it makes them sort of pause for a second and say, huh, I didn't consider this person in that way. Or it makes them then say, I want to learn more. Mm -hmm. It gives you, it's the equivalent of letting you crack that door open so that you can then show how you enrich and provide value. I wanna, and, you oh. know, Elon doesn't always have, like, young women standing in front of him laughing in his face. I, I, I would expect not. So I want to back up a, a few bits because there was something that you said about the the risk of over-preparing and being mm-hmm. in the moment. And I want to see if I can connect the dots and if I'm making, if I'm adding it up in a way that's useful. And so Mm -hmm. you can either like reinforce it, poke the holes in it. Mm -hmm. So when I think about when I over prepare for something and I'm so fixated on a script, Mm -hmm. um, I got to remember these words. I have to do it in this order. It not only, especially with things like an interview or a presentation, makes me more frozen. It also means that I'm spending mental energy on what I'm trying to remember to say as opposed to watching and listening to what's happening in front of me. Yeah, I mean, it puts you in this mode where you're sort of tethered to what it is you want to get out. You're tethered to what you want to say and having the conversation go in that direction. So anytime it goes in any sort of tangential direction, you bring it back to the points that you want. Whereas if you're not over-prepared, but you sort of have loose a loose idea of where you're going or a loose idea of the sort of things that you want to communicate, you're able to sort of build off what that other person, and it's a true interpersonal interaction. A lot of times we go in and we sort of know that we're interacting with somebody else, but we, we, we were so fixated on the pieces that we want to say and the direction that we want the direction, the, the conversation to go, rather than sort of understanding that things are going to be, you know, loose and fluid and that there's opportunities to engage with that person while still, um, you know, getting your talking points out. Yeah. So in essence, it sounds like 
there's some kind of core fundamental practices that I think are easy for people to relate to if we can remember to apply them, that part of it is going in and listening so that you yep. make it a conversation and a collaboration. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me in some ways of theater improv, where you go in and you say yes and to mm-hmm. whatever's happening in front of you and run with it. Like you went in um, listening to him. Mm-hmm. And you responded to him and with him. And you're also authentic. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's definitely that piece of that. There's definitely that improvisational piece of it that I talk about a lot. Um, but, you know, there's, I, I, it's, it's why I outline lots of strategies and tactics for how you can actually think about this. So, you know, another one that's sort of similar is when you're having these sort of conversations, the tendency is to really go in and advocate, like come on really strong and advocate and sort of, especially when we're preparing for like a big meeting or we're trying to convince somebody to our, to our, you know, standpoint, we go in and we're sort of like, you know, I'm going to give these amazing points and that person is totally going to see my way and then and switch the way that they think about something and instead sometimes if we go in with more of a you know like help me understand how you're thinking about this help me understand about how you're coming up with this strategy and I came up with this strategy it allows you to then do that improvisation it allows you to then sort of have that more fluid kind of conversation and allows you to see the ways that you can delight um, and 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 get that opportunity for yourself. Absolutely. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Harvard professor Laura Huang about her book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura, in the book, one of the stories that you told, and it's wove, by the way, for I highly recommend it. It's an interesting and delightful read. You tell a series of different stories. You've got entrepreneurship stories, but you've also got stories about yourself. And one of them was about when you as a kid um, were in math class and asking to be advanced for um, an advanced course. And you got to know that you knew wasn't about your math skills, that there was a different kind of bias behind it. Yeah, it's so, I mean, so there's like, it's so funny because um, so much of this book is based on a lot of the research that I've done. And, but in writing a book, it's, there's this personal aspect of it that goes in and you're right. There's all of these sort of personal stories that are kind of horrifying and terrifying that they're now um, (laughs) touching and enlightening to us. Sorry, they're horrifying for you. Cause it's so there, some of these stories are just so, so personal with research. It's like your statistics and your findings um, and the results. And, um, you know, and in writing this book, um, with with the with the first version that I wrote, it was like just trying to get eighty thousand words down on paper, and I figured, you know, a lot of the really personal stories would kind of get edited out, um, and you know, after a long re- revision and editing process, I realized I was reading the final manuscript and thinking, oh my gosh, this story is still in there, and you know, it was the first time I was reading it from the perspective of you know, friends and people I know reading this. So, so yeah, there's, there's lots of these sort of stories. And the one that you're referring to is this story from when I was quite young and, um, and, you know, we, we would take standardized testing every year, these state tests in, in public schools. And, um, I had gotten scores that were, you know, in the 99th percentile and, I got this letter or I got this, you know, my teacher had, had said to me after sending this letter back to, to my parents, hey, you know, you're supposed to be in our school's gifted and talented program based on these scores. But we've never had an instance where somebody has gone in based on test scores. It's always been, you know, the test scores were lower, but the teacher recommended, um, you know, I'm a, because of the school that I was in and I was a product of this sort of system. And, and she said, so there's something wrong here. Um, these test scores can't be right. And I had scored, you know, in that top percentile for both math as well as English and language arts. Um, and so she said, okay, we need to retest you. And so they gave me sort of this school test. Um, and again, I scored really high on both of them. And so they said, okay, we need to invite your parents in. And we had this conversation and they basically said, look, um, we are state mandated to put her in the gifted and talented program based on these scores. But there's just something wrong here. There's no way she can 
be in the gifted and talented program for English and language arts. Why not? Well, (laughs) well, at that age, I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite know what was what was happening. And they sort of said, well, because she doesn't speak English well. And um, aren't you a native English speaker? (laughs) So, well, I'm. I'm bilingual, where, you know, my first language was both Mandarin as well as English in that sense. But, you know, um, and they said, so we can't, we're going to put her in the gifted and talented program just for math. And so it was the oh first time that they had a student that was sort of pulled out of class just for one subject and then put back in for another part of it. And so, you know, I was young and I didn't quite understand what was happening and I didn't know what that feeling quite was yet. And I didn't know what, what it was based on. And my parents also, you know, my parents were immigrants. They didn't know what was going on either. And so for years I, I got pulled out just for just for math and then I would rejoin for the, for, you know, the, the classroom English and language arts. So, and, Laura, I want to just probe for a minute because I think for a lot of listeners out there, the thing that was ambiguous to you, um, I think, bears bringing into high relief that it sounds like these were the biases in the school system that were being um, that were shaped by the fact that your parents were non-native speakers of English and immigrants and that you're an Asian-American woman, but that you looked Asian as a girl to them and that they were making assumptions that weren't based in fact or fair. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. I also, I mean, I grew up in a really small town in a small public school, and there weren't, there wasn't a lot of racial diversity. In fact, we were the only Asian American family um, in this this sort of school district. So I think certainly there was an aspect of it. But you know, like I said, I was too young to really understand. Um, I was too young to really understand racial bias at that age. I just knew that there was some feeling that I had that something didn't quite fit. Something didn't quite feel right. Um, something didn't quite feel good about it. And I talk in the book about how life rhymes. Um, I loved that <laughs> that idea, and I had never heard it before. So tell us what that means. Yeah, it's this idea that, you know, when we are trying to understand, I mean, a critical piece of being able to flip the perceptions of others in our favor is understanding what those perceptions are. And it, those perceptions really differ based on the situation that we're in, the context that we're in, the other person that we're interacting with. And the way that you sort of figure that out and the way that you sort of start to see patterns is by understanding that life rhymes. And so that I, I, at that age, I didn't quite understand what was going on, but there were multiple instances throughout my life where I had that same feeling. And maybe it wasn't the same type of person I was interacting with or the same context, but I started to see that people perceive me in a certain way based on certain things. So where so, so, so where a rhyme are words that sound the same but aren't the same. In other words, we go through our lives and we may be having these experiences over and over again, each slightly different, but they're fundamentally about something similar. And it's right. the rhyme that conclude that rhyme, that pattern is the thing to, that can clue us in that this isn't just in the moment, that this is a kind of pervasive issue. That's right. And so when you start to understand that as well, I mean, because what's critical really is being authentically yourself and understanding who you are, but also understanding that every time you're interacting with somebody else, there, there's, there's going to be different perceptions and attributions that are made ah, about you. So by and, understanding the patterns and the rhyme, it can help you anticipate the way that you're likely to be perceived so that you can approach it strategically? Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's there's this piece of it that, that sort of feels strategic and almost manipulative. You know, some people say, like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. It feels like I'm engaging in impression management or, or something. And what I always sort of say is, you know, this is actually the opposite of that. There are definitely instances where we can, where we remember of, like, someone, like, kissing up to the boss or something. And we're like, we don't want to be that, <laughs> right? We don't want to do that. That feels, like, strategic and manipulative. And, and phony. It, yeah, and it feels phony. That's, and we don't want to be that. But, you know, this is really about, you know, what I, the perspective that I talk about in the book is that this is the opposite of being strategic and manipulative. What you're really doing is guiding people. That's the G of EDGE, right? We've enriched, delight, guide. Guiding people to who you authentically are. Because people are going to have 
perceptions and be making attributions of you, regardless of whether you guide them to who you authentically are or not. People are going to try and put a story and assign a story to who you are. And so you shouldn't passively let others write your narrative. You should be writing your own narrative and guiding others' views of you. And, you know, it goes along with this authenticity piece because we often hear this advice, you know, be yourself, right? You go into an interview and, and you're talking and your friends are like, the advice they give you is just be yourself. They're going to love you. Or you're giving a big presentation or, or trying to close some deal and they're like, just be yourself. Or you're going on a date and people say like, just be yourself. That's actually horrible advice. (laughs) And it's not because of an inauthenticity piece of it. It's because there are so many versions of ourselves Being yourself requires embracing all of the varied and complicated pieces of yourself. And I always like liken it to, you know, a diamond. If you think of like a diamond, we're all a diamond. We're all a singular diamond that has flaws and that has different angles to us. And based on who it is that's looking at that diamond and the angle at which they're looking at it and the lighting and the environmental conditions, that diamond is going to shine differently based on who that other person is and the lighting and the context. And when you are guiding others and guiding the perceptions of others, all you're really doing is showing them in an authentic way that angle of your diamond that's going to shine the brightest to them. That's such a beautiful way of putting it, Laura. Yeah, I mean, you're still the same diamond. You're still the same person. You're still yourself, but you're doing it in a way that really allows you to have that deeper, richer interpersonal connection with that other person because they're seeing that part of you that shines. So rather than just take that overly simple adage of, oh, go be yourself, which is um, which version of yourself becomes the big question, it comes down to who we are, what parts of us we show, and how we show up to engage others. Yeah, exactly. And based on knowing who that other person is. And that's why it's so critical because your your diamond is going to shine differently to different people. I mean, who Depending you are on where your, the light is. Yeah. Who you are with your children is very different from who you are with your boss, which is really different from who you are with your friends. And, and there's lots of ways that you can be yourself. So in the first half of the show... Um, You were helping us see that there are these preconceived notions, biases that people have when we enter into a conversation with them, and that by becoming aware, aware of them, aware of ourselves, um, it can help us have different outcomes in those conversations. So I want to start with a particular question um, that I think a lot of people face and often get wrong, which is that you know you're walking into certain stereotypes. And we need to guide the person we're engaging with into a different way of seeing us without directly confronting them. Why is direct confrontation, particularly about biases, so dangerous when inside we're like righteously full of rage and want to say, that's not okay, you can't look at me like that? Yeah, I mean, we sort of know that it's not okay and that we d- it doesn't feel right. But when we go into a situation, for example, and we say, "I know it's because you," it, I know it's because I'm a woman that you think X. What happens is that it puts that other person in sort of a confrontation sort of mode. So the natural response is either going to be, "Well, no, 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 it's not because of that," even if it might be, we don't know, or it starts. it starts into this sort of negotiation or confrontation type of thing. There are ways that we can flip those perceptions and flip those stereotypes, but do so in a much more benign way. And the reason why this is important is that it's not just the stereotype of someone as a woman or a person of color or, you know, what, you know, whatever the case might be. It's that underlying that, attribute, there's some sort of stereotype or perception that's being made. Um, And when we can get at what that underlying perception is, that's when we're able to more clearly flip those stereotypes and and obstacles in our in our favor. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, One that first of all, one one that first is not related to to gender, and then happy to sort of go into that since 
you know, a lot of my research does look specifically at gender. But one of the sort of things I looked at was ageism, for example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, older employees and, you know, when older employees sort of go in and say, like, I know it's because you think that I'm old that you think X, Y and Z, you know, that sort of puts people on it. It it makes that sort of confrontational mode. Um, But in fact, when in, in a lot of my research, what I find that what underlies ageism and older employees, we tend to think it's things like, oh, they're not as technologically adept or they're not as, you know, quick with the newest strategies and tactics or, you know, but actually the perception, there's only a couple, there's one of the most salient perceptions that people make that is, that sort of underlies all of those other perceptions is curiosity. It's that older employees or, you know, those who are older in the workforce are not as curious about about things. And so when I have those same individuals go into an interview, for example, and I tell them the perception that they have of you is that you're not curious. So give them examples of times when you're curious. Ask them questions that demonstrate that you're curious. And they go in and they say things like, you know, I'm really, I'm really curious about how your strategy has evolved over time. Or I'm curious about your vision and where that came from. And just by sort of doing that, it flips people's perceptions of your ability to want to learn new technologies, want to um, engage with changing the structures and the systems and the processes in the organization, wanting to work with other people, being a, a good team player, all from sort of the, that underlying perception. So rather than kind of going in and saying, like, I know that I think it's because I'm old, right, that X, Y, and Z, when you, when you do that, what I find is that you're, you're, you're just as likely to then get hired, if not more likely, because they're taking all of the positive attributes that they've already perceived about you, you know, about experience, about all these sort of things that are positive about someone who's older, and you're taking those, those, those risks, those things that they, they thought were negative, and now you're flipping those to be positive. It also sounds like embedded in this is that, the because these are also pre these are also implicit biases subconscious biases mm-hmm. so they may not be it, it, the younger person may not be aware that they have them mm-hmm. so and that rather than coming in and confronting it head on saying I know you don't like me because I'm old and then the, there's a backlash risk because the person is now defensive and you've made them feel bad instead you've come in and tuned in and listened which also must make them feel valued and engaged and respected from somebody more mature but who's leveling the playing field by opening up conversation in um, a more inclusive way. Yeah, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be able to guide the perceptions of others um, and overcome these barriers because sometimes they're on purpose. Sometimes it's just because of implicit factors or implicit bias, but you do so well staying true to yourself. And doing it in this way allows it to be very benign. So even if you're wrong about those perceptions, and it had nothing to do with, for example, that you were older or less curious or whatever, there's no harm, no foul. When you go in and you sort of give these examples of times when you were really curious or questions where where you are really curious because these are positive attributes. So I talk a lot in the book about how we tend to think about, you know, our alleged weaknesses, um, but or or sort of the criticisms or the stereotypes that people have. But when we really dig into these weaknesses or these stereotypes, there's often a congruent strength. Um, You know, it might be. You know, you're you're experienced, but you're you know you're you're stubborn because you're not willing to learn something else and new, right? And so you take that negative, you're stubborn, you're not willing to learn something new, and you turn that into whatever that congruent positive perception is, and that's how you sort of flip these these underestimated strengths upside down to succeed in both business and in life. So it sounds like. As I was reading these stories, and I'm hearing you explain this, it's um, in the moment we have to learn how to hear the rhyme, to see that that pattern's emerging, but hold on to ourselves enough to understand that um, it's part of a pattern, 
It's not necessarily about us. And to be present enough in the moment to guide the person that we're talking to to a new way of seeing things. Absolutely. And I think that being, you know, that that being present piece and and being really true to ourselves is is so important because, you know, like there are definitely people who sort of ask me, like, what are the five steps that I need to take to create um, and gain my own edge? And, you know, I would love to be able to give people like a recipe. Right. Like half a cup of flour mixed with eggs. Right. 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 Like here's the five steps that you follow. But the more authentic and the more you make it about you, that's why it's sort of a perspective rather than a, you know, uh, than than a, I mean, I call it a framework, but it's not a framework in that sense because it's really a, a perspective that you take. And the more you make it about you, the more you understand how you really enrich and, and provide value and I call it, you know, your basic goods, the more you sort of know your basic goods, the better off you're going to be in understanding how other people see you and understanding how you yourself delight in really unique ways and how you guide people and what sort of works for you in guiding those perceptions versus someone else. For those of you who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm talking with Laura Huang about her book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Our phones are open. If you want to give us a call, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Laura, when you're talking about this approach of being present and figuring out how we're going to bring the goods and show them that we've got the goods, that connects really quickly to some form of self-promotion, which is tricky, particularly for women. So help me understand how we can approach it so that, A, we're comfortable with it when we get so many messages that we shouldn't self-promote, and what are the ways of engaging in that kind of self-promotion that isn't crass and cheesy, but instead powerful and effective? Yeah, I mean, the self-promotion piece of it has such a negative connotation, right? It's one of those things that does make us feel like, oh, like it's uncomfortable. It feels almost gross. Like we don't want to be, we don't want to be doing that. <laughs> right. Especially, and like women, we, you know, we know overwhelmingly, you know, on the aggregate women have, this makes us feel um, kind of uncomfortable. So I talk a lot in the book about different strategies and tactics for making this really about about you and making it, doing it in a way that is in the situation that, that sort of works for you. So one of the sort of examples that I gave, um, which I think, um, you know, I sort of came to this realization. And I will say, you know, by the way, that we, we often kind of get this this advice too. Like we, we even ask for it. Like if there's somebody who's in some sort of a position or has achieved some sort of success that we, we ourselves would like to achieve, like let's say we take a CEO of a company and we ask that person, like, how did you become CEO of this company? I would love to someday be you. And they sort of outline the path that they took. They're like, oh, well then, you know, then I went to business school and then I did this rotational program and then I did this thing in sales and then I became the CEO. And then we sort of follow that as again like as sort of the recipe for doing it but inevitably if you follow that same path you will 100% get to a different spot you because you're a different person Mm -hmm. a different person with different strengths and different core skills and different attributes and so you know it has to be very very personal and in terms of sort of the self-promotional piece that that you're mentioning I remember when I first um when I actually, it was when I first joined Wharton, um, there was a colleague of mine who said, yeah, you know, you need to get to know the senior faculty. You need to get to know, like, the associate deans. Um, you need to, like, network and get to know them. And I said, well, what do I, what do I talk to them? They're like, anything, anything at all. You just get to know them and, and um, you know, invite them to dinner, invite them to drinks have drinks with them and just get to know them in a casual basis. And this was like a male colleague of mine. But that's a little, you can't call the dean and say, hey, you want to come out for drinks? (laughs) 
And so this was a male colleague of mine because that's what worked for him. Right. And I remember, and I was like, oh, okay. And I was still, you know, really new, didn't, very naive, didn't know my way around the school at all. So I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. And so I was like, I knew sort of there's no way I can invite a dean or a senior associate dean or a senior faculty member to drinks. Like, that's just something I knew already that that wasn't going to work. But I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's so, a whole other show why that's a recipe for disaster. Exactly. Exactly. There's just no way that that was going to go over well. But I was like, okay, well, let me invite them to lunch. It's something a little bit more, you know, uh, it's more professional. It's something that I – and so I invite this, this senior person to, to lunch. And we're having lunch. And the whole time I could sense that this person was like, what does she want to talk to me about? Like, what's the agenda? Why is she wasting my time? I have such an important schedule and so much stuff that I'm trying to do. So it was so different for me than from my male colleague. My male colleague was able to just have drinks. They were able to riff. They were able to just talk about whatever. But for me, it was like, that person was like, does she want to talk to us about our annual fund? Does she want to talk to us about the like the curriculum, about the state of the right, school? Right, because it's also it? uh, sitting down for lunch. I've had this before where people have invited me to lunch. Right. And I'm not right. even, and it's not even that I'm so important. It's like, okay, so what do they want to talk about? That's right. That's right. And it was, it was one of those things where I was sort of advised to just get to know people. There should be no agenda. You just get to know them. But it didn't work for me, and it didn't work in that way. It could work for other people, and it did work successively for for lots of other people. And what happened was a couple weeks later, I actually um, was giving a talk at a conference, and this, um, this senior individual ended up being on the same flight as me. And we're getting off the plane, and I sort of was like, oh, hi, you know, remember me, that person who wasted your time at lunch? Um, and, and he was like, oh, hey, you know, are you going to, you know, are, are, and we realized we were going to the same place. We were going to the same conference hotel. We were both giving talks there. And um, we're getting off the plane, and he says to me, oh, hey, how are you getting to the hotel? And he said, oh, you know, I'm going to book an Uber or something. And he said, oh, well, I have my, my car waiting. I have my private car waiting for me. And I'm, th- and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, me too. It's, I have my private, <laughs> car. It's a private Uber car. And he said, well, would you, do you want to ride with me? And so I said, oh, sure. So we rode together for 45 minutes from the airport to this conference hotel. And here was a situation in which there was no expectation of an agenda or what I wanted to say. It was he was going to be in the car anyways. We were going to be you know, taking this ride for 45 minutes. And it was there where we had the opportunity to really just talk and I could be myself, all the versions of myself. Right. He was himself. And we just had this amazing rapport. And to this day, he's still one of the people that I go to for advice and mentoring. And we just were really able to – and I was able to do it in a way that was not about self-promoting or not in a way that felt inauthentic. I was able to – because I wasn't, you know – thinking about it in the way that other people think about, I was able to sort of do it in my way in that situation. So it sounds like the interpersonal dynamics were more successful because it was less forced. It was more authentic. And um, you and like we talked about earlier, it what you were in it together. That's right. We were in it together and we really were able to because a lot of times we think of things from either our perspective, like what we want to be saying and what we want to get out of it or that other person, like what they're thinking and what they want to get out of it. But there's not often that we really think about that space in between. So um, I want to probe this also in terms of when it's time. You know, we built the rapport. We're in the dialogue. And part of what we need to do is help the other person see our competence Mm -hmm. and our ability to help them reach their goals. Mm -hmm. How can we approach this so that we are heard, um, we're effective, and at the same time dispelling those preconceived notions? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the guiding piece is so important because we we think a lot about guiding in terms of how we're seen, like in terms of traits, in terms of are we competent, are we conscientious, are we likable, are we warm. Um, but 
what I find in a lot of my research is that, in fact, the perceptions that people have of us, the most important perceptions that we need to guide are sometimes not about those traits, but it's about our trajectory. It's about where we've been in the past and where we are now and what we're capable of doing in the future. So, you know, people might write us off, for example, because of the education that we've had, or they might be making assumptions based on our background or our families, um, or they might be making perceptions and attributions based on the current role that we're in. And this is that piece of not passively letting others write your narrative. Mm-hmm. You're guiding others, not just to who you are, but also your the trajectory. You're redirecting them to how they should see you, regardless of, of whatever else in the past has happened. And when you're able to sort of get into that piece of it, the piece where you are um, guiding your trajectory as well, you can guide the perceptions of how you enrich and provide value and will do so in the future. Um, and it sounds like that's a, a really potent way that you can make your value evident without seeming self-serving. Yeah. I mean, cause what happens is also that the self-serving piece, like we, we go into situations and we're implicitly thinking that we're in sell mode or pitch mode. And in fact, it's not about, nothing is about, very few things are about selling and pitching. Even when you're explicitly <laughs> selling and pitching, what you're trying to do is elicit interest. Right. You're really trying to start this conversation and, you know, say things that will make the, your counterpart ask you questions. And when they ask you questions, it's in your responses and in that dialogue that you really do shine. You don't shine by pitching and selling yourself. You, pit, you, you really shine when you're engaging in, in that conversation through the questions that other people are asking of you, the questions that you're asking of them, um, and, and in that sort of dialogue, because that's where you're sort of negotiating in a way. You're, you're reconciling and negotiating where the two of you stand in terms of providing value to, your, to each other. So I want to apply this now to a story that you tell in the book that I think every Um, that taps into experiences that every academic has about submitting papers for publication. (laughs) Talk about, you know, where you get the the edits back and they say rewrite and resubmit, and that's actually good news. So talk to me about how you learned to approach how you wrote and how you submitted and how you courted rejection in order to make progress. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, there are some situations in which failure and negativity is just par for the course. And in academic publishing, you know, 90% of papers get rejected. Yeah, if you don't fail, you're not trying. That's right. And even when you do get a positive response, that positive response is not, we accept your paper. That positive response is, okay, yes, now we want you to revise the entire thing and resubmit it. (laughs) They gave you you sort of comments. And this is sort of, that's really, it's something that's really kind of disheartening. And so I got this advice early in my career where, well, it was not sort of advice, but it was this very senior person who was telling me, and I don't know why he told me this, because he doesn't admit this. He didn't admit this to anybody else, as far as I, I know. But I was telling him about how, like, I was really frightened that I was a fluke. And maybe it was because I opened up in that way to him. I said, you know, I feel like I got this job, and I was a fluke, and I'm not never going to be able to publish anything. And all of the people who went to bat for me, all of the people who you know, gave me the benefit of the doubt are going to realize like, oh, wow, that was a mistake. And he sort of said, uh, yeah, and I remember even telling my husband, I was like, I just want one publication, just one, because then I can prove to myself that I wasn't a fluke, you know, and, and I, this, this colleague of mine, um, bless his heart, said, you know, the first 18 papers I wrote were rejected. 18? Yeah, well, I don't know if it was 18 papers, but the first 18 things he submitted. That's a lot. Yes, he said, I got 18 rejections before I even got one revise and resubmit. And this is somebody who's so prolific and so amazing that I was like, what? And no one would have known. So, you know, and and he didn't, he, he obviously hadn't told anybody else this because I had never heard this from anybody else. Um, which is why I'm really careful to protect his identity. <laughs> but um, 
And so then I was like, oh, well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and get 18 rejections. And, you know, and in doing that, it kind of freed myself from from this expectation that like every time I was sort of hoping for something and and it gives you this 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 different perspective and while in those 18 I was able to like see patterns like some of those 18 it was like when I worked with certain people over and over and over again like those inevitably even if they maybe were people that I saw it's just you know you start to notice these sort of patterns like what type of papers what type of co-authors you work best with like all of these sort of things and I now do um, something similar with my students which um, is called the 10 nose exercise where I have and I encourage people to do this because you learn so much in doing this and so in in the course of a week um, I have my students their assignment is to get 10 people to say no to them and it can't be like you get ignored Right, that doesn't count. And they just don't respond to you. And it can't be a hedge where somebody's like, "Oh yeah, I can't do that, but I'll do this instead." That's not it. That's not a no either, because then you got to ask the follow up to try and get a a no. And their assignment is to get ten people to say no to them, and then they have to write about each of those ten. And the reason why it's so powerful is that people realize that number one, we're not conditioned to like everything we say, the way we influence, we're always trying to get people to say yes, to get people to like us, to get people to like be on board with what we're doing. And it really shows you a different way of how you influence and how you present ideas and how you communicate when you're trying to get no's. You also realize people are much less willing to say no than you think. <laughs> and it's actually harder than you think to get no. And it gives you into so all of these sort of findings that my students come up with when their assignment is to get 10 no's. So you're both increasing your odds of success because you're putting more lines in the water, but you're also getting data back that you can use to inform your future behavior. For sure. And all of this data is so important to knowing how you enrich and how you delight um, and how you guide. And the final E is for effort and hard work. And I made effort and hard work. It's last. It comes last in this framework because we often think that effort and hard work comes first. That if you put in the hard work, it'll speak for itself. Laura, but you... in fact, it doesn't. It comes last because if you know how you enrich, delight, and guide, that's where your effort and hard work works harder for you. Well, Laura, you have enriched and delighted and guided us, and we can all now go out and try and do some of that hard work. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can people look for you and your work? Yeah, I'm on social uh, social media, Laura Huang, L.A., on Twitter and Instagram. My website is Laura Huang. Net. Huang is H-U-A-N-G. Um, and thank you so much. It's such a pleasure chatting with you and catching up with you. Same here, Laura. Thanks so much. And many thanks, as always, to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Follow us on Twitter, at Laura Zarrow. Have a great week, everybody. Go out. Engage in delight. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.